0: The very last couple of chapters of Leviticus talk about how sin brings shame, shame. It's like when a child in your house doesn't just do something against your rules, but soils the family name. It brings shame. And when I look at the cross in the Gospel of Mark, I don't see Mel Gibson's story, although Mel Gibson's story is probably how it looked. What I see in Mark is not the pain of the cross, I see the shame of the cross. As Christ bears our shame and takes it away. So we're not just freed from the guilt of sin, we're freed from the shame that it brought as we're able to enter into the Holy of Holies as a son or a daughter that God is proud to call His children. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Here's Nathan Guy. We're doing a series on finding the gospel in every book of the Bible. And I was asked last week, Nathan, do you think you could provide the notes for us so that we could be covering these things ahead of time like you do on Sunday mornings? The answer is yes, with an asterisk. I can provide them after the lesson. Why? Because what I usually have in front of me on Sunday nights is a jumbled mess. So I've put together notes for, Gen- for e- Genesis and Exodus, and I will have them available on the website. Now, the church website is still being uh, revamped, and so eventually they'll be there. But until then, they're on the um, uh terribly um, self-involved name, NathanGuy.com. That is where you can find sermons. And if you go to the Sunday night sermons uh, on each of those, I will have the notes available for you uh, to go with those. They're not there yet, uh, but I will put them up tomorrow for Genesis, Exodus, and at some point this week for Leviticus. There's a couple of books that I'm using, and I'd like to recommend one at a time. This is a really good one. Michael Williams. It's called How to Read the Bible Through the Jesus Lens. And he goes through each book of the Bible, each chapter is four pages long, and says, here's something to look at that reminds us of Jesus in these books. And I find it really helpful. Jay Sklar is an Old Testament scholar uh, who wrote an article, Four Things That Happen When You Study Leviticus, For more than 10 years. And he began by saying, I know what you're thinking. The answers are, you get to know your psychotherapist really well. Or people stop inviting you to dinner parties. And he says, no. uh, It's something better than that. But let's let's just do a little thing here. Raise your hand if in your lifetime, at the local congregation where you've attended... You can remember a whole series of sermons based on the book of Leviticus. (laughs) He said the same thing. He said, in 14 years, I had not preached a sermon from the book of Leviticus before I began to do this. I I try to say, read the Bible like a love story, not like a, a list of rules. And then you get to Leviticus and you say, preacher. It's a rule book. Look. Sure enough, Leviticus feels like an instruction manual. And listen, I listened. I did I'm an auditory learner. I listened to the entire book of Leviticus this week. Still boring. I understand. I know how it feels. It looks like a bunch of rules that are hard to read and irrelevant to my life. So, how can Leviticus be read through the gospel lens? John Harrelson uh, wrote a little thing about this, and I really liked some of his observations. He said, First of all, did you know that for a long time, Leviticus was the first book that Jewish schoolchildren would be taught? It has more direct quotes from God than any other book of the Bible. On almost every page, the person speaking is God. Plus, it's a relational book. It's like a wedding ceremony, the whole thing, where God and his people are exchanging vows and making promises to each other, promises of faithfulness. And love. And then after the ceremony, God gives instructions on the tabernacle, that, that tent. And He says, I want it to sit right in the middle of the people. The way to think about that is since we're getting married, we're going to be living together. And I want to talk about what that's going to look like. What does it look like when God dwells in the midst of His people? And this is God's take on that question. So his laws and his rules reveal something about the original purpose he had in creation. You might think of Leviticus like a blueprint. Okay, some of you love to see, go visit really nice, well-designed homes. And when you go to really nice, well-designed homes, you enjoy things like, ooh, look, I could imagine drinking coffee on that balcony just off of the upstairs bedroom. That's perfectly placed, looking right over the well-manicured lawn. That looks exciting. But you wouldn't sign up to do a uh, walkthrough of, like, all the best blueprints of houses. And yet, everything you love about that house is in the blueprint. Think about Leviticus as the Blueprint. The fulfillment is so much better, but it lays out everything that we now love about the relationship we have with God, the forgiveness of our sins, the atonement that we experience. It's all set forth in the blueprint. William Tyndale, a reformer several hundred years ago, said, when we have found out Christ and his mysteries... Then we can borrow figures or allegories or analogies and it helps us open Christ and the secrets that God has hid in Christ, even to the spiritually alive. And then we can declare them more lively and sensibly than with all the words in the world for analogies have more virtue and power than bare words. And they lead a man's understanding further into the pith and marrow and spiritual understanding of the thing than all the words that can be imagined. For allegories make a man quick-witted and print wisdom in him and make it to abide when bare words go but in one ear and out the other. What if the book of Leviticus is a blueprint that serves as an allegory for the most important things in our relationship with God? Wouldn't that be something if we can see Christ on every page? A couple of things to notice when you read Leviticus. First, Leviticus says that there's a system of sacrifices. The first seven chapters lay out all these different kinds of sacrifices, the grain offering, the sin offering, and so forth. All these sacrifices and the priesthood, and the priests have to wear certain clothes and they have to belong to a certain family or tribe. And then then on once a year, the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, the central room in the tabernacle and offers atonement for his own sins and for the sins of the people. You know, God wanted to dwell in, with and among his people, but there were limits. He worshipped, he lived with his people, separated by the tent. And he'd commune with his people through a mediator. It's not like that anymore. The book of Hebrews could really be sort of like the fulfillment to the Leviticus blueprint. If we had time, we'd just go chapter by chapter, but I'll point some things out. In Hebrews 4, in verse 14, it says, Jesus is our great high priest. And not just that, The great high priest was not a sinless person. The great high priest was a representative who would take a sinless lamb. Jesus is our great high priest, and he's also our sinless lamb. Hebrews 9 and verse 14, he is the sinless suffering sacrifice. So if he's the great high priest and the sinless lamb, What happens when you combine those? Well, look in Hebrews 7, verses 26 and 27. It was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices every day, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Every time you see a story about a sin offering, a grain offering, a fellowship offering, a high priest doing its work, remind yourself that this is just a blueprint. This is laying out a story that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In fact, this is amazing. It was the case That God came to dwell in a tent and the people would gather around the tent and send someone in so they could be represented in front of God. But now God's spirit dwells in all of us, which means we are living tabernacles with God moving into our hearts, John 14 and 16 says. The Christ who makes atonement, who is our high priest, who is the sinless sacrifice, also now lives within us. Second, cleansing was applied in a ritual. The ritual was always based on God's actions. Nobody jumped in the big bath called the laver and said, look what I did. And nobody looked at the blood dripping off the sacrifice and said, look what I did. But they did wash in the labor and they did offer the sacrifice. And in Hebrews 10 and verse 19, I can't help but think that the Hebrew writer has in mind the Christian initiation rite of baptism and of gathering as a people. When he says in Hebrews 10 and verse 19, therefore, brothers, Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us, you and I, draw near. Remember how the people could only let the high priest draw near. Let us draw near. With a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience as our bodies are washed with pure water. When you see the labor, when you see the sacrifice, when you see the rituals, remember that was done by one person as representative for the people at a time. Now, it marks and identifies all of us as God's people, as God's spirit dwells within us, and his blood continually cleans us at all times. Number three, obedience was always the appropriate response when God says, I want you to be my people, and I want you to keep covenant with me. Salvation has two very important words to attach to it. One is the word from. And What is the word for? It's extremely important to know that salvation is salvation from something. We've been saved from sin. We've been saved from the evil world. We've been saved from our past. Praise God. We've been saved from ourselves. We're often our own worst enemy, but we weren't just saved from something. We were saved for something. God redeemed us so that he could have a people that looked like him. He redeemed us so we could have a community that acted like his children. He redeemed us so that we could change the world by being lights of the world. And that's what the covenant was all about. We weren't just saved from something. We were saved for something. And as you look at all the intricate laws in Leviticus, no, he's defining a, a people who are defined by their actions, who are defined by how they live and how they're different And it marks them as the people of God. In Exodus chapter 19, God said, I am calling you and I've named you as my people because I want a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Peter quotes that in the New Testament and says to all Christians, you are a kingdom of priests. You are God's holy nation, his own special people. When you read about the laws in Leviticus and you think two things, either or number one, these are so boring. Why do I care about them? Or number two, these look really awful and hard and bad. Boy, good thing I don't have to keep laws anymore. We're missing the point. <laughs> when David writes Psalm 119, the longest Psalm in the Bible, the whole Psalm is basically praising God for the law. How can David say, oh, how I love your law? When you read Leviticus and you think, how could anybody love this thing? Isn't it great? We don't have to do that anymore. It's not the way David thought. It's not the way the Jewish people thought. Having God tell you what he wants that makes you different from the rest of the world and marks you as his people is a blessing. And David said, I am so glad I'm wiser than all my teachers because I know what pleases my father. That's how he saw the law. He delighted in it. He longed for it. And so in the New Testament, when Paul spends chapter after chapter saying, look what you've been saved from by God's sheer grace, when you had nothing to offer him, that is great news. Equally great news is that God has also given you a mission, something to live for, and he's shown you how. He has shown you what is good. In Romans chapter 12, and verse 1, Paul has just spent three chapters, three of the most difficult chapters in the whole Bible. If you want to know what Romans 9, 10, 11 are about, I don't know. Ask Dwayne Wharton. But after all of that very difficult stuff about dealing with Jews and Gentiles and the children of Esau and the children of Abraham and what God's doing in the whole story, chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, because of the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable to God that is your some versions say reasonable service others say act of worship present your life on the altar as a thank you for what God has done in with and through you or second peter chapter 3 and verse 14 make every effort to live blameless, holy, and pure. The language of sacrifice in the Old Testament. Number four, Jesus is the great high priest. Cleansing is applied in ritual. Obedience is the necessary and appropriate response. Number four, being free from guilt and shame is worth celebrating. There's a lot of different ways you could talk about sin, but I really think sometimes we miss not just that sin keeps me out of heaven, but sin weighs us down and makes us less than human. Brene Brown is very well known for talking about how to deal with guilt and shame and getting past guilt and shame. But long before Brene Brown was Leviticus, the very last couple of chapters of Leviticus talk about how sin brings shame Shame. It's like when a child in your house doesn't just do something against your rules, but soils the family name. It brings shame. And when I look at the cross in the Gospel of Mark, I don't see Mel Gibson's story. Although Mel Gibson's story is probably how it looked. What I see in Mark is not the pain of the cross. I see the shame of the cross. As Christ bears our shame and takes it away. So we're not just freed from the guilt of sin, we're freed from the shame that it brought as we're able to enter into the Holy of Holies as a son or a daughter that God is proud to call his children. Remember this passage in Hebrews, Jesus says, I'm not ashamed to call you brother. Isn't that beautiful? There's a song, and I forget the first part of it. One of you will remember, Andrew, you might remember. The the last line is, Be of sin, the double cure. Cleanse me from its wrath and power. Sin's got all kinds of things tied to it. Guilt and shame are some of them, and we've been freed from that. So I began by telling you about Jay Sklar, who wrote this article, Four Things That Happen When He Studied Leviticus Over Ten Years. Here are the four things he mentions. Number one, you hunger for God's holiness more frequently. Leviticus 19 is a great chapter if you ever want to explain to somebody why Leviticus is worth reading. Leviticus 19 is a chapter where you have one line in there that says, uh, You shouldn't kill. Okay, who thinks that's a good law? All right. A few verses later, You shall not wear a shirt made out of two different kinds of cloth. Who thinks that's a good one? Okay, if you're looking at your tags, if it says 50% and then whatever, you're in big trouble. You were not supposed to wear a shirt made 50% cotton, 50% polyester. It wasn't allowed. Not just that, you couldn't sow two different kinds of crops in the same square. There are all kinds of rules and laws like that right next to, right in the same category with don't kill, don't steal, don't take my name in vain and make sure you're not wearing a shirt made of polyester. Why is that all in there? You know what he's doing? At the beginning and end of each of those laws, he says, I am the Lord. Why should you do this? For I am the Lord. Why should you do this? For I am the Lord. Now, when I first read that, I think, oh, I know that one. My dad used to use that one. It was called, because I said so. That's not what's going on here. You know what he's doing? He's teaching them to think about what it means to be separated and different every second of every day. I'm so grateful that the karate kid made this sermon illustration for me. You remember how he wanted to learn how to fight? And so Mr. Miyagi teaches him how to sand the floor and paint the fence and wax the car. And at some point He's pretty upset about it. Daniel son comes to him and says, listen, I, you've, all you've done is you've got me to like do all your hard work for you. I haven't learned how to fight at all. And then Mr. Miyagi says, sand the floor. And he steps back. He's about to kick him. And what do you know? Sand the floor was the movement that protected the kick. Paint the fence. And he goes to punch him in the face. And paint the fence was a movement that blocked the punch. He didn't know it. But the whole time he was training, he was learning the art. But he just didn't know it. What God is doing is He's saying, I want to teach you what it means to be holy and separated. And the way you're going to know it is if every moment of every day, what you're thinking and noticing is separate, different, separate, different, separate, different. At some point, it's going to click. You, your identity, is separate and different. It's not a law anymore. But what am I doing in my daily life to remind myself and my family that I'm called to be holy, I'm called to be separate, I'm called to be different? Number two, you fear God more greatly. You read stories about God's holiness and God's justice. Number three, you love Jesus more deeply. He said that uh, he studied the book of Leviticus for 10 years. And his wife noticed something. In church, every time they would sing songs about sacrifice or atonement or the Lord ransoming us from our sin, he would just start bawling. Because he spends all week looking at what that means and realize just how far God had gone to pay the ransom for us. And then lastly, you learn to love your neighbor more fully. You know the two greatest commandments are the love the Lord your God with all your heart. And to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus didn't just invent those. If you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four is loving God and the last six is loving your neighbor. He was summarizing the Ten Commandments. But the statement, love your neighbor as yourself, is in Leviticus. It's a quote from Leviticus. And what does it mean to love your neighbor? It doesn't just mean to be nice to them. It means to forgive what feels like inexcusable. That's what it means to love your neighbor. And C.S. Lewis one time said that if you're ever having a hard time to love your neighbor and you think I can't forgive him, well, it was inexcusable. Lewis says, we well, got to remember, it shouldn't just be hard. It should feel impossible because the Lord has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Leviticus teaches you something. Every single person who went to offer a sacrifice went to him with soiled hands there wasn't anybody who was so holy and righteous so holy and perfect that everything in leviticus pointed to them it was always looking beyond to one and only one perfect lamb who would fulfill all that god asked of him and then some so we follow christ we follow a great high priest as hebrews says who wasn't We don't follow a high priest who wasn't touched or experienced what we have. But instead, we follow one who experienced all that we have and yet lived it right. Let Leviticus point you to Jesus. for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguy.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.